Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is one of the great hiking destinations in the Mid-Atlantic region, if not the entire East Coast. Across its rumpled 522,427 acres, there are more than 800 miles of trails. They range from relatively short footpaths to scenic payoffs like Rainbow Falls and Abrams Falls to the more than 70 miles of the Appalachian National Scenic Trail that crosses the top of the park. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. I have hiked a little, very little, in Great Smoky, but it's a destination I still hope to spend some more time on before I hang up my hiking boots. Nancy East, on the other hand, is well familiar with the park's trail network, as she and a close friend set out in the fall of 2020 to hike every mile of that network. And then she wrote about it in a new book, Chasing the Smoky's Moon. We'll be back in a minute with Nancy to understand what motivated her to embark on such a hike and what that endeavor taught her. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Okay, we're back with Nancy East, the author of a new book on hiking in Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Chasing the Smoky's Moon. Welcome to The Traveler, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. You know, how many miles did you actually hike? I mean, it, it's a little bit confusing. Um, what you and Chris, your, your close friend, um, embarked on is called the Smoky's 900, and yet there are 801 miles of hiking trails in Great Smoky's. And in the book, you say you covered 948 miles. In fact, the subtitle of the book is An Audacious 948-Mile Hike, Fueled by Love, Loss, Laughter, and Lunacy. So how many miles are there? Yeah, good question. It can get a little convoluted and confusing, and it's a bit of a dynamic answer. So back when the 
club was started. This is kind of a thing in the Smokies for people to go out and hike all the trails in the park and have the recognition on a website. They get a little certificate in the mail, that kind of thing. Uh, there were about 900 miles of trail at the time, but over the years, some trails have been decommissioned, uh, largely, I think, in part because of storm damage and whatnot, just the financial resources that would have to be allocated to repair them it was just more of a burden than the park could manage, and so they just decommissioned the trails, and it has whittled itself down to, I think right now it stands just at a tick over 800 miles. I think it's like 800.3 miles. So the 900 name came primarily from the initial amount of trails that there were in the park, but it also stems from the fact that no one can hike them, at least to date, no one has hiked them in less than 900 miles of putting miles under your feet type of hiking. So you have to cover at least 900 miles to connect all the different network of trails just because you wind up backtracking on some, some have dead ends, out and backs, that sort of thing. So I think the record for the most efficient map to date is around 920 miles at this point, but he did some off-trail travel to connect those trails so yeah. a little bushwhacking pretty, pretty competitive with that aspect of it too now were you always a, a long distance hiker or was this uh, the result of a, a, a whim or a, a bet you lost <laughs> yeah kind of all of the above in some ways but uh no i've never been much of a long distance hiker i've never hiked a long trail i have plans to in a few years when i become an empty nester but for now i'm just a recreational weekend warrior and always wanted though to tap into my potential. I uh, just always felt like there was a fire somewhere beneath the surface that was burning that really needed to be let out to see what I was capable of. And I'm, well, I'm about to turn 50 next month, but at the time I was 47 when the stirrings of going after the speed record took root in my heart. And I thought I better start chasing something now or it's gonna be too late. I'm just not gonna be physically capable of doing what I can do right now. And so that was kind of how it came to be that I wanted to, to chase the record in some ways. There are multiple facets that led me to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to convince my body that uh, 65 is the new 55, and uh, it's a struggle right now. Um, I haven't figured out which one of us is going to win. Now, this wasn't just um, let's go hike 800, 900 miles in Great Smoky Mountains. This was a fundraiser. It was, yes. I am on a search and rescue team here in Western North Carolina, and we primarily answer calls in Pisgah National Forest, which is home to Shining Rock Wilderness, Middle Prong, very popular areas. We're a very, very busy team. I think consistently about the second busiest team in the state as far as answering wilderness call-outs. But we also work in the Smokies, in the National Park. It's not our primary job, but when they need help and assistance, especially on the North Carolina side of the park, we are usually the ones that they call on first. So we're in there quite a bit. And we just see a lot of repeat mistakes that people make, largely out of ignorance. You know, some of them are lack of humility and people making foolish choices, but most of them are just people not knowing what they don't know and ending up in their predicaments. And some obviously turn into fatal scenarios. And 
it was actually a fatal search that led me to want to pursue this record in the name of preventative search and rescue. There was a hiker who got lost on one of the most popular trails in the park, less than a mile from her car. And she perished that evening from hypothermia. Her core body temperature was no longer sustainable with life. And it was just a tragic reminder of how fast things can spiral downward for someone who doesn't have what they need up in their, you know, between their ears and their, their head to know how to survive or the gear to uh, carry them through what they may not know what to do with. Right. And that was uh, Susan Clements, right? Um, a few years Susan back. Susan Clements. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very publicized search because it went on for a week and a lot of people were suspecting foul play just because they thought how in the world could she have gotten lost on that particular trail? And uh, we never, you know, we're sure what we were going to find, obviously, until the very end. But her body was what we found in a, a creek drainage miles from where she was last seen by her daughter, who was hiking with her. Her daughter went on ahead to visit the iconic tower at the summit of Clemens Dome, which is the highest point in the park. And they just agreed to meet back at the car. It seemed benign enough of a plan, and they were so close. But uh, obviously, it, it turned to a very uh, just dismal trajectory from that point. Now, um, anybody who has never been to um, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, or in Great Smoky Mountains National Park can't really appreciate the tangle of undergrowth that exists there. I mean, you get off trail and it's easy to get, um, get lost. Very much so. Yeah. And unlike out west, where you may have a summit of a mountain with a clear vista for miles ahead of you here in the Smokies, that's very rare to have a bald summit. And uh, so usually you're you're surrounded by trees. And then if you get off of a summit, even more so with with all the undergrowth and whatnot, it's very hard to see where you are, even if you have map and compass skills to get a bearing. Perhaps the the greatest um, search and rescue ever in Great Smoky Mountains and, and one of the most uh, uh, disappointing outcome was back in uh, 1969, Father's Day weekend. A, a young boy, Dennis Martin, and um, his family were up um, along the Appalachian Trail, um, staying at one of the shelters there. And he just vanished while they were playing a game of hide-and-seek. And, seek. and um, it, the, the search went on for a long time. They brought in the military. Um, President Nixon was um, uh, alerted to the situation. Gene Dixon, the um, astrologist, was uh, consulted as to where Dennis might be. Um, heartbreaking situation. Yes, it really is. And, and his body was never found. Um, yeah, it was one of the most tragic stories in the Smokies and, and very rare. I can't remember the number of people whose bodies have not ever been recovered, but it's small. And some of those are suspected suicides for people who didn't want to be found. But yeah, it's just a tragic story and one that most people know in this area. Right, right. Now, getting back to the fundraiser aspect of your hike, um, you wanted to raise money for a preventative search and rescue program in Great Smoky Mountains. How did that go? Yeah. Yeah, it was through an organization, a nonprofit that works with the park called Friends of the Smokies. And every year they work in conjunction with the park to come up with a budget 
with allocations to whatever programs or needs that the park has and then friends with the smokies goes out and tries to raise this these funds they do it through various fundraisers throughout the year but obviously not every need is always met just because the needs in a park that doesn't even require a visitation or a fee to, to enter as a visitor uh it, it can be a challenge and so i knew that that was something that was probably within uh, the realm of doing as an individual is raising the amount of that line item, which initially started out at about $60,000, but then I think it was whittled down to needing about 30000 in the end. And so I thought that's that's surmountable. I think if I can do something that draws some attention, people wonder if I'll be able to finish it just uh, and want to watch and see how it unfolds. Maybe I can hook them with that endeavor and then encourage them to donate by sharing search and rescue stories, preventative search and rescue tips, and, and things like that along the way. So did, did people pledge X amount of dollars per mile that you hiked? We tried to do that. I don't know if that really worked out as well as what we hoped it would. We did have a lot of companies, gear companies, and local businesses who would donate uh, just different products or services that we created a silent auction for. So that was very successful. We do know that that was very uh, intriguing to people just because they got something for their donation if they won the auction. And then just a lot of people just out of the kindness of their heart just made a flat donation regardless if we finished or not. That was most people. You enlisted your husband to outline the course that you and your buddy Chris Ford would follow. It was actually my search and rescue teammate, Lane DeCoste. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, my husband was very instrumental in other ways, but it was Lane who, what we like to say, unwound the Gordian knot of all the trails to hopefully make the most efficient route. As far as only staying on trails, he did create the most efficient routes by a small margin, uh, but we unfortunately weren't able to quite execute them as planned for reasons outside of our control with trail closures and whatnot. But he did create, at the time, the most efficient map. Yeah, I'm wondering, I mean, after all these years, there's not one set uh, route that people normally take when they want to set the fastest known time for hiking all the trails in the park? Believe it or not, no. The three individuals, or actually, no, the four individuals who have now done this as a speed record attempt have all completely done different things. They've had similarities. There are certain pockets of the park where it just makes the most sense to really make a carbon copy of what the other person had done. But depending on how many miles you want to cover really dictates the type of route that you end up taking. And since ours we knew had to be faster than the fastest known time at the, at the current time that we started, we knew we had to tweak them a little bit to make them longer than, than that guy's. Now you, you set off in, uh, I believe it was October of 2020. Um, why did you pick that time of year? Yeah, we actually started in September and finished in October, but we chose that just because it was a shoulder season. Traditionally, it's the drier season of the Smokies. Since the Smokies are a temperate rainforest, they get a tremendous amount of rainfall each year. And we certainly weren't excluded from that the time that we were out there, but we knew that the odds were in our favor to not deal with relentless rain for days on end and swollen streams, all the hazards that come along with that rain as well. Were you able to uh, avoid most of the rain or do you, do you recall how many days it rained and how many it didn't? 
Yeah, I need to look at that statistic. I don't know how many it did rain. It felt like more than normal at the time. And I don't know historically if it was, but there were a couple of tropical storms that blew in in the Gulf that then dumped on the Smokies. And so we did have a couple of stints where it just felt like it was never going to stop. We never had snow. We can certainly have snow that time of year, but we were lucky in that regard. There were a few cold mornings, but for the most part, we had pretty nice weather. Yeah, yeah. No, you are fortunate because, you know, it's hurricane season. And while folks don't think of Great Smokies, North Carolina, Tennessee, in the in the path of hurricanes, um, once they come ashore, they kind of run right up the Appalachians. They sure do. Yes, they definitely can and kind of spin and cycle through there for longer than, than you expect. Yeah, mudslides and everything. Now, you, you suffered at times on the trail. I believe you, you damaged ligaments in your hand and wrist and... Um, and there was a thigh muscle you pulled? Yeah, I had, I hardly ever get injured, but I had a string of them. About two weeks before we started the speed record attempt, I had just a completely random fall. It was on the most benign stretch of trail in the entire park, it felt like. But there was just a slick patch of grass that I slipped on and came down onto the tip of my thumb as I fell forward and it ripped the ligament off of the thumb so I could no longer oppose my thumb to my pinky and that needed to be surgically repaired and they couldn't do it until a week before we started. So I was in a full cast on my left hand until the day before we started and then was the, the cast was removed, but they had to replace it with a splint that I wore the entire hike. So it was a little bit of an inconvenience and a nuisance, but it, in the grand scheme, it, it wasn't so bad. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds, you know, just a week after surgery, I'm impressed. And what was the deal with your thigh? Yeah, my thigh, that was completely random. I have no idea what caused it. I just one day at the end of our hike, I got out of my car when we got back to the hotel we were staying in that evening and just felt a twinge of pain and thought, well, I hope that goes away before tomorrow. It didn't. It got worse. And over the next two days, it just increasingly became more bothersome to the point of really hobbling me, especially going downhill. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to keep up with Chris, my friend. So I traveled back to North Carolina that evening. We were on the Tennessee side of the park and met a friend who's a physical therapist who was kind enough to meet me in his office on a Friday evening at nine o'clock at night to do some dry needling and whatever, you know, magic physical therapists do to get you on the mend quicker. And it helped enough that I could go back out the next day. But yeah, it, it certainly handicapped me a little bit for about a week. And then it let up. Wow. It was just wow. a badly pulled muscle. Yeah, and so you decided to hike anyway. Now, um, I believe your your time, you and Chris, covered all these miles in 29 days, 10 hours, and 12 minutes. Is that right? That's correct. And if folks are not familiar with how people go about setting the fastest known time, you're not out camping in the park every one of those 29 days, right? I mean, it sounded like you did, you, you tacked together, you threaded together a bunch of day hikes. Exactly. Part. Yeah, it was a mixture, really. And because the pandemic happened to hit at the exact time that we were supposed to start, the park actually shut down for about six weeks. And so we had to delay the start until the fall, but it actually gave us more time to prepare and get ready for 
just the physical endeavor of it, but also to start seeing what we could do as alternates to staying in some of the campgrounds because they were still shut down. Even though the park reopened, some of the front country campgrounds stayed closed until almost the end of the season. And so we weren't able to use them as we had planned. So luckily, because we were tethered to Friends of the Smokies for this endeavor, they had connections with local business owners who were so gracious to donate two rooms for us because Chris and I are just friends, we're not married. And so we needed two separate rooms, but one hotel in particular in Gatlinburg donated a hotel room for each of us for two straight weeks. So that was wow. a tremendous benefit to be able to come home, have a hot shower, a warm meal. Uh, it was just a tremendous gift. But we did spend one night in the true backcountry at a backcountry campsite and a few nights at front country campsites, but not very often. Now, were you carrying a, a full backpack or were you more hiking with day packs? Day packs, yeah, very equipped day packs. We were always careful to always bring what we needed if we had an injury that, uh, you know, handicapped us, right? Somebody needed search and rescue to come carry him out, that type of thing. So we were always prepared in that regard. But yes, we just were definitely able to benefit from a lighter pack because it wasn't everything that we would take for a backpacking trip. We're talking today with Nancy East, the author of a new book, Chasing the Smokies Moon, that recounts her trip along with Chris Ford to hike every mile of backcountry trail in uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park and Front Country Trail, I guess. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts like certificates, money markets, and even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickel and dimed every time they make a transaction. That is the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. Send your bank up, 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 and away and experience the membership difference with Interior Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, 
Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Okay, we're back now with Nancy East, uh, the author of a new book, uh, Chasing the Smokies Moon, about hiking every mile of trail in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, now, Nancy, um, correct me, um, was it Chris's idea to do this and you kind of jumped on? Or was yeah, it the other way around? Yeah, a little bit of both. We both had this idea swirling around in our heads for different reasons. And we were just hiking friends. We had gone on several hikes together prior to letting each other know that we were thinking about chasing this record. I had no idea that Chris had it in his mind as well. He was about to go hike the entire Pacific Crest Trail. And he thought, well, I'm going to come home from that. I'll be conditioned and primed, ready to go and just go see what damage I can do to this record. And simultaneously to that, I was thinking about, you know, these middle-aged awareness type thoughts. And then Susan Clements happened. And I thought, well, maybe I can merge these two processes and go after this speed record for a cause, just because I am a mom still to kids at home and a wife, all the things that I have to do. I could have never just probably convinced my husband to let me go out and chase this record for no good reason, <laughs> other than <laughs> feeling middle-aged. <laughs> so, uh, but I wanted to tether it to a cause. That's my passion has always been uh, helping others and especially through search and rescue. So it was a, the perfect marriage of those two ideas. But then when Chris and I both disclosed this to each other, we were both a little shocked that the other one had already had the stirring in our head and heart about going after it. So we just started talking more and more about it and thought, you know what, let's do this together. It's a safer way to do it. It'll be more fun. And yeah, I can't imagine having done it alone now that I've done it with such a good friend. It was just a tremendous experience to share between friends. Had he hiked the, the PCT before you guys embarked on this or did that trip get derailed because of COVID? No, he actually was able to do that. He hiked the PCT before COVID. It was the year prior, so I guess 2019. And then he had hiked the Appalachian Trail as well as a through hike in 2015. Sounds like a horrible way to pass time. <laughs> you learn a lot about yourself. <laughs> you, you do, you do. Um, did, did he struggle with any injuries on this hike? No, he was so fortunate. Chris is, his trail name is Pacer. And it's because he is so good at setting a consistent pace that doesn't wind him too much or anyone hiking with him. And he just knows how to treat his body well out there for longevity and endurance type hikes like this. And so he was a great person to have in the lead. He always hikes ahead of us because I'm terrible about just taking off too fast and then you know, running out of steam earlier than I need to if I'm on a hike by myself, but he's very consistent. And I think that that really plays into his success as an endurance hiker. He's in his fifties now. So, you know, he's certainly not any younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, there was an unfortunate situation you ran into on the, the Endeavor, um, the matter of Campsite 82, which um, you guys were supposed to stay at, I believe, but the, the, trail and the campsite were closed um, due to the death of a 43-year-old Illinois man who an autopsy later determined was killed by a bear. That has to um, really shock you and, and get you to question, you know, should we go on and what's the situation here? 
Yeah, talk about safety and numbers. We were sure glad for each other that particular day because our story became so intimately interwoven into that entire tragedy. We were actually headed to Campsite 82 the day that this man's body was taken out by the Park Service and the bear was euthanized that you know caused his death, supposedly. So it was it was a really just eye-opening experience to just what bears are capable of because people see bears in the Smokies all the time. It's not uncommon to come across them, but for a death by a bear, it's only the second time it's ever happened in the park. And just interestingly, I was sending my son and nephew who were 16 at the time, I believe, and a friend of mine, an adult mentor, with them to meet us at that campsite. They were bringing all our gear to us. And so when we got wind of this news that that's why this trail was closed when we got to the trailhead, all I could think was it's one of our people who's been attacked. And I just thought the worst for a second. So as a mom, it was a pretty sobering experience. And not that I would wish this on anyone, but I was certainly relieved to know it, it wasn't a family member or a friend. And it kind of threw a wrench into your day's hike because uh, instead of being a few miles from the end of the day, you had an extra seven miles to tag on. Yeah, we did. Yes, yes. I mean, a small problem to have in the grand scheme, but yeah, it did derail our best laid plans of completing all the trails. We initially wanted to complete them in 28 days to align with a lunar cycle, but then that unfortunately, you know, it, it altered it a, a little bit. We had to get a little bit creative with what were we going to do? How are we going to hike this trail if it reopened? We weren't sure if it would reopen or not. Yeah. So did you have to go back and, 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 and hike it to make sure you touched all the bases, so to speak? We did. Yes. And like any good adventure story, there was a lot of suspense in not knowing when it was going to happen and how it happened, how we ended up having to hike. It was a story in and of itself. So yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely, a, a just one of the most pivotal points of the entire 29 days is when that started to unfold. And then the lingering question mark of, will this trail reopen? Will it not? What are the guidelines as far as a speed record? If it doesn't, a lot of things that stem from that experience. And, and of course, um, as you mentioned, um, despite this incident, bears normally aren't a threat in the park. Um, the, the previous fatality was back in 2000. And yet you can never be too safe. Absolutely. Yeah. And apparently this guy was very safe and knowledgeable and had a healthy respect for bears. So I don't think that this was anything that he did wrong from everything I've read and understand about him. But unfortunately, the area where he was is an area where people can come in by boat, on horse. They bring in literally trailers that they will trail behind horses full of coolers and food for days. A lot of fishermen use these camps nearby. So there's a history of naughty bears in that area, but it's of course not the bear's fault that they become this way and become so habituated and sometimes aggressive and predatory. I think that a lot of times it's human created problems that lead them down that path. What did this endeavor teach you? I mean, you mentioned loss in the subtitle to the book. Could you explain that? Sure. Yeah. So that was where there are a lot of stories within the story within this book and the personal side for me, other than just that middle age awareness that I mentioned earlier was losing my mom to cancer in 2010. 
it's something that had had a decade of time almost to pass by the time that we took on the speed record attempt. But, you know, it's grief is a process. It's certainly a marathon and not a sprint. And I had always dealt with it in healthy ways. I had not done anything reckless after her death that gone off the deep end, so to speak. But I still was a mom to three young children with a career. It was hard to find the time to grieve, if that makes sense. And so this was (laughs) kind of a just almost like a sabbatical for me to just have some time to really process what happened and think about it in a healthier way and how I wanted to use the experience of her death and more importantly, her life to better myself and to try to better the world like my mom had. She was an incredible person, a saint walking the earth is Hmm. saying it lightly. Now, as we discuss, it was a fundraiser um, to raise money to support a preventive search and rescue program. Was there a a specific dollar amount that you were able to to point to that, yes, we raised this much money and, and what was that money spent on? Yeah, so we ended up raising just over $30,000, which we were so proud of. And the park, from our understanding, originally was going to use it to fund some staff. Some There's basically an emergency manager that already is an employee of the park. And she was then to take those funds and hire a couple of other rangers with it to then implement this preventative search and rescue program. They wanted to draw on community members and have volunteers at trailheads like the one where Susan Clements lost her way, just to educate them, just talking points about the 10 essentials, you know, what to do if you get lost, that type of thing. And that was how it was intended initially to be used. But then come to find out they weren't quite able to fund salaries with that particular line item in the budget. And so I think instead it went more towards equipment to use for search and rescue operations. It didn't mean that that PSAR program wasn't implemented because it certainly was. It's just, I think it was a little bit of a, a shuffling and a reallocation of the funds, but it all went towards preventative search and rescue in a, you know, just a roundabout way, I think. Yeah, there's there's always concern by the the Park Service to commit fundraising dollars, for lack of a better thing, towards salaries because you know if there's not an ongoing fundraising program, then you've got these positions, and how do you fund them the next time the budget comes around? I know um, in some parks in the West, you know uh, Grand Canyon, um, Yosemite, I believe have some PSAR programs, preventative search and rescue. And yeah, they place, they place uh, rangers in, in key points where they can um, meet with visitors and, and point out some things to be aware of if, if they're not familiar with the landscape. So it can be quite helpful in that regard. At the same time, you can't always protect people from themselves. And I, I raise that because there was just a, a rescue of a San Diego man who was hiking the Appalachian Trail in the park and got snowbound after a storm dumped more than a foot of snow, and he actually had to be airlifted out by the Tennessee National uh, Army Guard. Um, yes, I just read about that last night. And we even here in Haywood County in Pisgah National Forest had a novice backpacker on his first solo trip who came to backpack the Art Lope Trail, which is about a 30-mile trail that touches in the higher elevations of that forest, close to 6,000 feet. He wasn't aware that the snow was coming. He just didn't think to check that long range forecast and was completely caught off guard without anything to really get him through those conditions. And luckily he had 911. So 
we were able to come help him. And that story, interestingly, has made national news attention, even more so, it seems like, than the one that happened in the Smokies a couple of days ago. But yeah, people just don't know what they don't know, but they sure know better the next time. I know that. You would hope so. You'd hope so. And I think part of the problem is is technology. Um, technology is moving forward faster than people's individual abilities at time. Um, I know I've talked to, to um, backcountry rangers with the Forest Service who say, you know, the strides being made in Telemark ski gear are taking people farther in the backcountry than they are prepared to go. And all of a sudden it's like, gosh, we've got a long way to get back to our car. Um, and then the advent of... Um, spot or um, the in-reach devices where people figure, well, I can just, you know, push this button and somebody will save me if I get in trouble and their possible lack of self-responsibility um, um, comes into play. With the, I'm sorry? Oh, I said absolutely, yeah. No, yeah. we see all of that for sure. Yeah. Well, at least with the spot, we don't have the snow here to, <laughs> to have the other problem, the amount of snow anyway. Yeah, yeah. With the rush to the outdoors generated by the COVID pandemic, what have you seen in visitors to, to Great Smoky and to the, the National Forest that you're familiar with? Are, are most folks being careful out there? Are they conscious of how to behave in the outdoors? Mm, as far as safety, uh, interestingly, we had a higher volume of call-outs during the pandemic, but not as much as I expected. Most of the things that happened were kind of par for the course, what we would expect. And we didn't see a huge uptick, but what we did see and what I continue to see is just a disregard for leave no trace principles. Lots and lots of trash, masks in particular, just litter the trails and parking lots. And it just, to me, some of these things are common sense. So I'm a little incredulous sometimes when I see toilet paper right beside the trail and whatnot, but to a lot of people, I just, I guess they're not, you know, I guess they think the rain will come and it'll dissolve and, and go away, but obviously it doesn't. So that's what I've seen more, more so than anything else. Yeah. I've talked to some park superintendents who were totally amazed by, by some of the people coming into their parks who were unfamiliar with basically how to behave in a national park. And they, um, they would, you know, just go behind a rock, behind a tree and, um, you know, maybe they dig a hole, maybe they wouldn't dig a hole, whatever. Um, and so it's a, an education process moving forward. It's going to be interesting to see how life is in the national parks and the national forests this coming summer. Yeah, for sure. What, what advice would you give folks going into, into the parks, into the national forests? I mean, you're, you're on a search and rescue team. Um, you've probably seen a lot of causes for why people get themselves in trouble. Um, any pointers you can hand out? Yeah. Oh, it's my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah. Cause they're such easy things. I think people overthink it sometimes and just don't do anything because they think it's too hard or that they're just not experienced enough to do the things they should do. And, and that's so not the case. The first thing I would encourage everybody to do is just Google the 10 essentials for hiking. All it is is a list of things that you need to put in your pack to make sure you always have there in case you need them. You may never need some of those things, but when you're in a situation where you're lost or injured, those are the times when it counts and you're not sure, you know, if that rain gear, you may never need it, but if it starts to rain and you're out there for days on end and the temperatures in the forties, it's going to save your life, you know, certainly matches all these things that are on that list or have the potential to literally save your life. 
but then always leave your itinerary with someone before you go on a hike, even if it's a one mile hike, it needs to be known by somebody in the outside world and make them accountable for when you return. It doesn't do you any good if you tell a friend and then you guys aren't gonna talk again for a week because you might be out there lost for a week and they don't know. Uh, so check back in with that person. It makes it so much easier if we have a starting point to know if somebody doesn't come home, where they were, what time they left, all those pertinent pieces of information. And then the second or the third thing I guess I would say is, like I alluded to before, check that weather forecast beyond your trip. Even if it's a day hike, look at the forecast for at least three to four days beyond that. Because if you are lost, especially if you're lost and nobody knows where you are or you're just really, really lost and it takes us a long time to find you, you need to know what you might want to stick in that pack to endure those conditions. The hiker that we just rescued over this snowstorm was a perfect example. He just didn't know. And he would have certainly probably died had he not had that cell reception to call 911 and let them know that he was really starting to suffer out there. Yeah, that's, um, you know, getting back to the technology. I think um, a lot of us have become complacent. We figure we've got a phone in our pocket. We're always going to have cell reception and um, we can be saved. And that's not always the case. Absolutely. And of course, if uh, if you're not prepared for rain, wet weather, snow, cold, um, hypothermia really jumbles the brain cells. It sure does. And it only takes a couple of degrees beyond your core body temperature for it to really start jumbling those brain cells. And people even start to think that they're not even cold anymore. It, it really plays tricks with you and can become fatal very quickly, much more so, I think, than people even realize. So um, what's next on your hiking schedule? Are you and Chris going to do it again? Um, you, you mentioned, I think, maybe doing the Appalachian Trail, or is that on your to-do list? It is on my to-do list. Yeah, I got a few more years before I'm an empty nester. But as soon as that happens, that'll be my way of coping with, you know, the loss of chaos in the home that sometimes drives me nuts. But most of it I absolutely love and will miss when they're gone. Uh, but for now, I just keep on chipping away at trails in this area. I'm working on hiking all of the Palmetto Trail in South Carolina right now. And uh, Chris and I are kind of like gerbils on a wheel. We just keep going around and around in the Smokies together and completing more laps of all the trails just because it's familiar to us and it's easy for us to meet. He lives in Tennessee. I live here in North Carolina. So it's a central spot to meet up, but we're still great friends. And uh, yeah, just lots of little micro adventures along the way. Yeah, I think we've got a, a mutual friend in common, uh, Danny Bernstein. And of course, oh, she's, yeah. you know, talks about the, the mountains to the sea trail. What about that one? Definitely. Yes, that's on my list to do. Yeah, when the kids are all out of the house as well. I wish I could start chipping away at it now, but it's a lengthy one. You know, it's over a thousand miles. And so it's a little bit in our state is so long to get to the coast to do a section hike is a pretty big endeavor. So I'm going to save that one for a through hike. But yeah, that one will probably come even before the long national scenic trails like the AT and, and all that. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk about your new book and the best of success with it. And uh, happy trails, I guess. Yeah, happy trails to you too. Thank you so much. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find Nancy East's book, Chasing the Smokies Moon, at all the usual online outlets. The preventative search and rescue programs in the parks are so important. Reach out to your favorite park to see how you might support them. And if you haven't had a chance to read The Traveler this past week, 
There are stories there about reservations needed to hike Old Rag in Shenandoah National Park, record crowds at Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and the move of the reservation platform for backcountry campsites in Rocky Mountain National Park to recreation.gov. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.